0: What's the government's solution to an economy drowning in too much debt? More debt, of course. You know, what's another, you know, what's another three, five trillion
1: dollars on the, on the debt limit? And it's crazy, I know. And it's really not very responsible at all. But that's where we are today.
0: They say there's no bad situation that the government can't make even worse. That seems to be the case right now. The government's extreme intervention has resulted in an economic and financial system now dependent upon ever more stimulus. But suddenly, there are a number of government initiatives, many at cross-currents with one another, that look like they'll reduce the flow of stimulus going forward and create a drag on global growth. To predict what the impact will be on both the economy at large as well as the financial markets, I'm pleased to welcome Ted Oakley to the program. Ted is founder and managing partner at the investment advisory firm, Oxbow Advisors. Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet, Adam, thank you. All right, Ted, well, let's get started with a question I like to ask all my guests at the outset. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets?
1: Well, you know, Adam, the thing about it is, is that when you look at 300 trillion in debt worldwide, You can't see a good end to that is the problem. I mean, you could keep on piling it on, but there's a a problem with getting debt so high. It was was like back in 1930, 31. You get it so high, you can't do anything with it. And then that just basically slows the growth, a la Japan uh, and what's happened to them. And now you're seeing that really creep into other countries as well. So you don't see these big growth patterns anymore. I'm not saying you don't grow at all, but it's certainly going to keep a cap on it. And that's the problem right now with global markets. They're priced to perfection as if they could grow double digit or something, and that's probably not going to happen.
0: All right, so um, we have markets that are basically, you know, priced to fantasy, uh, priced to perfect conditions, and you're saying it's going to get harder and harder to grow uh, just from the debt burden alone. Um, not even take into consideration some of the things we might be talking about here in this interview.
1: Yes, because what happens is I I know people are thinking that that's not a problem, and it's not a problem if you have uh, negative interest rates or zero because you're not really paying anything. Where it becomes a problem is if you go to refinance or something along that line, and all of a sudden, and they don't realize that really how that affects things if you go from it's one thing back you know 20 years ago go from maybe four percent to six and a half but that's call it what you want 50 percent or something but if you go from a quarter to two and a half your percentage is huge and that that's becomes hundreds of percent yeah <laughs> yeah so that that's where you get to with this and, and i think people get lulled into thinking everything's okay because i'm not having to pay much but but it's it doesn't stay that way forever.
0: All right, well, if I forget later in the interview, Ted, uh, help me re- remember to ask you about um, the central bank's abilities to keep rates low forever um, because that seems to be their current plan right now. Um, is that a realistic assumption that they'll be able to do that uh, from, from now until the end of time, or, or will something come up that forces uh, either their hands or just forces uh, the situation to, uh, to, to move away from them, which has happened in previous eras. We all remember the bond vigilantes and whatnot. But before we get there, I wanna ask a question about the current state of the markets because um, in prep- preparing for this interview, I watched a couple of, uh, of recent interviews you gave. You gave one in August where you said that uh, you thought the markets looked like they were in their last innings of this current bull market. And right around the end of August, beginning of Labor Day, uh, beginning of September around Labor Day, uh, the markets did peak. Uh, they're not down that much uh, since then, you know, maybe coming on 2%. Um, so not a massive sell-off yet, but they've certainly become a lot more volatile. On the day you and I are talking, the major indices are, about, are down about 2% or more, so they're not having a very good day. So I guess my question for you here is, uh, did, did the ball game just end for this bull market?
1: We you know, Adam, I think what's happening is, and this happens at the end of markets, and I've, I've, I've probably been through more uh, bear markets and bull markets than most people, but what happens in the end is uh, they get overpriced and they stay overpriced and they keep on going and people sort of get lulled into thinking uh, it's okay that they're overpriced. But there comes a point to where, and we use almost entirely fundamental research, we're not technicians. However, we start to look at some things, like for example, uh, if stocks are, we have less advancing stocks and more declining stocks, which is what we've been seeing now for like the past three months, that type of thing we start to watch, because those are just basically roadmaps is all they are, but they start to tell you something. And then you look at uh, price to sales and things like that, and you get to a point to where you realize that if you pay enough for a public company, it could be a long time before you ever get your money back. So you know you're in the zone. You just don't know what is the catalyst. And it's typically uh, not something that you know. You don't walk in and just have a crash like 87. I was with through, I went through that as well. But you, you, you walk in and it just starts to drift off. Uh, and then you see people taking profits and they're seeing something in the future they don't like. And typically that's what happens. And then you just do a stair step. And uh, over time, people get worn out over you know, 15, 18 months. And, and that's the way these markets go. I suspect this one would do the same. I don't know when that starts, but I would be surprised, I have to tell you, if it doesn't start uh, by the second quarter next year.
0: All right. By the second quarter next year. So, so let's now get into uh, some of the macro picture here. So um, I'm going to display here for a second here my favorite demotivational poster, which uh, has the caption If you think, uh, government, if you think the problems we create are bad, just wait until you see our solutions. <laughs> now, as I said in the introduction, you know, we can thank the government for creating a system that is utterly addicted to ever more monetary and fiscal stimulus here. Um, but sort of now in classic fashion, Uh, The government is potentially poised to to toss a couple of monkey wrenches into the engine of this smoking jalopy that it's counting on to to, to move us further from here. And uh, I'm specifically talking about, um, uh, well, I'll go through a list real quickly, but but let, let me list these factors. And then if you could just let me know how significant, if any, you think these are going to be in terms of slowing economic growth. Um, because obviously, if economic growth continues to slow further from here, at some point, the markets are going to have to uh, have some sort of recognition for that and the price to fantasy uh, fiction you know, that, that euphoria may finally get punctured. Um, but we're looking at a potential end or sh- uh, slowdown in monetary uh, stimulus uh, because the Fed is talking a very loud game about tapering, um, perhaps starting as soon as, as November. Um, it is getting harder and harder for Congress to push through fiscal stimulus. And the current proposed $3.5 trillion uh, infrastructure bill is, is really in danger of getting dr- drastically cut right now. And I think the political appetite for, for more than that uh, is not very high and probably getting less at the moment. Um, we've got this all of a sudden uh, brewing showdown over the debt ceiling, which you know, if that for some reason were not to get raised, uh, that could create lots of really big issues. I'm not entirely sure that they're going to let it happen, but, but still, it's a potential risk factor out there. Um, then we have a, a proposed tax bill. Um, and we also have China's monetary and regulatory tightening, which is slowing growth in, in, in the East, which you know definitely is going to have some impact here in the West. So I just listed a whole bunch of things there. Maybe we can take them in order um, let's start with the Fed taper. How, how, how big of an issue do you think it's going to be? Do you think the, the, the taper threat is even credible at this point? A lot of the market doesn't really seem to be worried about it. What, what do you think?
1: Well, it, you know, it's interesting, Adam, and if you look at what goes on in the tapering. So the idea is to do $20 billion a month. And so if you think about it like that, it'd be six months before you get back to zero. The problem you run into that in that six-month period, I could see this happening is things get weaker. And, you know, the Fed, you know, they have really, in my opinion, they don't have any guts. And so they, the what will happen is things get really weak and they just turn tail and say, no, well, we're going to hold off for a while or we're going back the other way. I, I never really believe what they say because as soon as you have trouble, they change the game. They move, move everything around. And so I, I don't know how it will end up. However, they may start it, Um, But whether they finish it or not is probably a different story. And the other side of it is if you don't move the prime rate, I'll give you an example. Most of the private businesses, uh, not public companies, private businesses that borrow, say, less than $15 million uh, on, on credit from banks, most of those are, they'll have maybe a prime rate, for example, but they'll have a floor. They'll have a floor of like 4% or three and three quarters. So you've got to get a big move before it actually affects those businesses. that where it does affect them will probably be in the margin side, that kind of thing eventually. But in the early stages, it probably wouldn't affect, it. what it would affect is the market and the bond market like it like it has done this, this week. So that, that to me is kind of how that'll play out.
0: All right. So basically what you're saying there is uh, Fed may start to taper. If it does, we're going to see, um, some pain in the markets as a result, but you're not super confident in the Fed's conviction to their tapering. and very well, just as Powell did you know back with a Powell pivot at the end of 2018, uh, they may reverse course quickly. Um, all right, now how about getting on to the fiscal stimulus side of things? Do you see the growing resistance in Congress to continue um, you know releasing fiscal stimulus to be um, a deflationary event on the economy?
1: I, I think so. I think what's happened is both parties have looked at it and said, you know, there's a lot of things here that should not be in a bill coming out of Congress. Uh, they, these are things that and I think I think they looked at it and realized there was a lot of vote buying in this thing. And that that, that was not flying well, even with a number of the Democratic Party. So I, 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 in my opinion, what they're going to end up doing is they'll have something, but it's much like uh Pelosi talked about this week, taking the infrastructure bill down to 550 uh, from, you know, over a billion. And they'll probably do something similar to that with the other one. They'll work out something. But uh, there's a lot of pushback on it now. And I think they've gotten a lot of pushback from from their constituents.
0: Right. OK, so here's where I'm going with this. You know, if we look back at the past year, past 18 months, you know, we've had just in the states alone over 10 trillion dollars combined worth of fiscal and monetary stimulus. And parts of that also included you know, all the extraordinary um, unemployment benefits that were going out to households, um, which have now all ended as of Labor Day. So um, when you look forward into 2022, um, you see a lot less coming in terms of the, the stimulus side of things. And I had Michael Pento on the, the program a few months ago, and he said that you know he thinks that's gonna be the defining theme of 2022, which we're gonna have the biggest monetary cliff in history and the biggest stimulus, sorry, fiscal uh, cliff in history as well. And so um, just looking at the states for a second, those two things combined, it's hard from my perspective to see that those don't have a very dampening effect on economic growth here in the country. Um, It sounds like you're you're saying you sort of share that outlook, but don't let me put words in your mouth.
1: Um, For sure, Adam, that's what I I see it the very same way. I think what happens is when you combine what they want to do, and then they come back in and say, "Hey, we're going to put it back on the backs of the people that you know that that pay taxes," then it makes you stop and think about it. And I, I think that's what's going to happen because they they have a tendency to think uh, wealthy people won't curtail their spending, but they do when times get tough, <laughs> and so. I think that's where they miss the point on that. And when you bring that much out, and you're you're right about that. If you, if you look at the numbers, that most of them have no idea how much a trillion is, really. But uh, when you put put that in effect and see what they want to do with it, I just don't think they can get all that across because there's a tremendous amount of pushback just out in the economic communities of it. They're looking at it and saying, "No, wait, wait a minute, you know." you're doing things that are not normal for the country. And so I think that's where it's coming from.
0: All right. So in the midst of of this looming double cliff that we just mentioned here, um, we now suddenly have the the expiration of uh, the debt ceiling where it needs to be raised, or if not, you know, we get into some big problems in, in a real hurry here. I don't think really anybody has the appetite for those ramifications, but... You know, consistent with a, a highly divided, uh, highly partisan uh, Congress, uh, folks are definitely playing political chicken with it here. Can you just give a quick um, summary of what would happen if the debt ceiling was not raised uh, on schedule, and uh, and then your odds and whether you think that they're that's actually likely to happen or not?
1: Well, Adam, if, it, if, it, if, they, if they didn't raise it, what would happen is be, you would go into an automatic slowdown because you have so much money that's transferred through the U.S. government for various things, not, not, not just workers, but I'm talking about jobs are on. You think about all the projects that are going right now in the U.S., and all of a sudden, let's say I'm a contractor And um, I'm used to getting paid every two or three weeks. I'll I'll submit a bid or whatever, and then you you pay me on that portion of it. All that stops. So it's a big, huge trickle down effect. I don't think any of those politicians have the guts to do that. First of all, they never have, and secondly, think about this: you get about two weeks into that, and first of all, you got remember this: you got six percent of the total workforce is U.S. government. So you're going to be getting phone calls and letters from all over the place from those in addition to everybody else that's affected by it. So they'll never have the fortitude to do that. In my opinion, if I had to make a bet on that, I'd give odds and take about all the bets anybody wanted to do that they wouldn't, ex- that they would, would extend it for sure. Cause I think they will.
0: Okay. Um, and I, I just, uh, pulled some stats that show that, uh, Uh, Without a a raising of the debt ceiling, uh, the U.S. begins to be unable to meet its current obligations at some point between mid-October, early November, which really isn't all that far away. Um, Sounds like you don't think it's going to happen because the the ramifications are kind of just too nuclear for the politicians. Could we have kind of a a weeks long or maybe month or two long standoff uh, where they refuse to raise it for a while um, just because one party wants to put more political pressure on another party? And we've had that happen in in past years, um, or do you think things are just so dicey right now that it's all just sort of kabuki theater at this point?
1: I, th- I think you're right. It could happen for a, or for a while. You know, you could happen for a week, seven, eight, ten days, maybe something like that. But I don't think it's anything that could go much longer than that because I think the pressure will be so big on them that they 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 have to do it. And I uh, I think they look at it and think, hey. You know, what's another, you know, what's another three, five trillion dollars on the debt limit? And it's crazy, I know. And it's really not very responsible at all. But that's where we are today.
0: All right. And you've also mentioned in some of your recent interviews, the concern you see growing amongst um, investors about um, some of the new tax proposals that are being um, considered right now on Capitol Hill. Um, Which ones in particular do you think are causing the most concern for investors?
1: Well, obviously, uh, I don't I, I think that the ordinary income tax rate is not something that is going to bother them that much. I mean, you know, you're going up about four points, four and a half points. That's okay. Now, the number that you bring in on capital gains is a different story. I mean, you know, they obviously pull back from the 40% and said, Hey, we're thinking maybe 26, 28, some number, but you have to realize. On top of that, you most places have state tax on top of that, so you're going to go over 30 uh, when you take capital gains. I think that's one of the very bothersome things. And the second thing is on the estate tax side, two parts of that. Number one is uh, without any step up in bases, which they've really gotten pushback on this. If you think about all the small business, small, small farms, everything that, uh, that you inherit from someone, they got a big pushback on that. And the second portion of that is uh, whether this comes into play, I don't know. But, you know, they're moving it from uh, 11 million, 11 and a half million or so for, per person down to five. And uh, the House version pushed it up early. It was going to take effect in 2025. And they moved it to January of twenty-two which is a real big concern for people that are trying to do any sort of gifting or transfers or that sort of thing. Those are two things that really, really, those two things bother people with money because all they're thinking is, is that, you know, I'm going to have to give up a lot of money here. And that those, those are two of the biggest things out there. I know there's a lot of other things in there that they're throwing around, but um, for, for people with wealth, those are two of the top numbers.
0: All right. So, you know, uh, governments uh, that begin to struggle uh, with their books, uh, I liken to sort of like a drowning man, right? They'll, they'll increasingly uh, grab desperately at anything as they begin to fall below the waterline. And uh, these may be indications of that, you know, as, as, as the... the uh, economy begins to slow, but yet the debt obligations and the entitlements and everything you know continue to mount. Um, a lot of people have predicted um, that the government is just going to get more and more you know desperate, get its hands deeper and deeper into our pockets to to fund the difference. These seem like two examples of that. And if I could just sort of restate what you said to make sure I heard you correctly, it looks like where tax policy is headed is um, they want to take a bigger chunk of investors' capital gains. All right, so everybody watching this so who's an investor you know, going forward, if you, if you have a successful investment and you get a gain, um, potentially going forward, the government wants to get a bigger chunk of that in capital gains taxes. And then secondly, you're saying they want to get a bigger chunk of uh, the estate taxes. And of course, we have a, a, a huge generational shift uh, coming up as the boomers begin to age out and pass away and pass their wealth down onto their uh, their progeny. Um, it sounds like uh, if Washington had its way, Washington would be getting a bigger chunk of that pie. Did I summarize that correctly?
1: Yes, you did. I, I, I think people look at that and think, you know, and you have to think about the ramifications, Adam. If you let's say I have a private business and uh, I'm getting into 2022 and I'm looking at that and thinking, well, if I sell the business, I have to give up, say, 30 percent plus if I'm in a taxable uh, state. Uh, that's there. That I'll, and I look at that and think, you know, uh, I'm giving up 30% plus Then I'm going out in the bond market or wherever after I have this, uh, this effect of this liquidity, and I can't get any return on that. Not get any return, exactly. No, so it slows down the thinking. We work with a lot of business owners after sale. It slows their thinking down. It even slows the thinking down on selling a piece of real estate. Because if you think about it, if I've got a really great income stream from piece of real estate and I'm going to have to pay 30 cents on the dollar when it's all factored in or more, then I've got to go out and get even a bigger stream of income to offset that because I'm using less dollars. And so you'll I think you could see a slowing of activity just on that one thing alone.
0: Yeah, uh, again, that's just one of the many, many unintended consequences. Of government policy, you know. Again, it tends to, uh, like I said, uh, build expression that there's nothing that the government, uh, government's involvement can't make worse. But you know, in a zero interest rate environment, um, people become very yield star, right? I mean, it punishes savers, and it uh, it interferes, it adds friction into transactions that might happen in a rational world. But to your to your point there, you know, the rational players here, uh, they may they may stop engaging in behavior that we would want them. In a perfect world to engage in because it's no longer in their better interests, given the uh, distorted environment that the government's created here. Um, All right. Well, moving on, Ted, I want to talk about uh, what's happening in China for a moment. Um, I've heard you give some commentary about Evergrande, and I'd love to hear your your most recent thoughts of it if you have them to share here. But the bigger question I have for you is uh, China is definitely taking a much tighter policy stance right now than than most Western countries. Um, and uh, that is having a slowdown effect in Asia right now, both in China itself and and in their trading partners in Asia. Um, we're also a trading partner, we're gonna get affected. How concerned are you with the, the ability of, um, you know, an outside player like China to, to worsen the, the slowdown situation that we've just been talking about by our own policies here? How, how much fuel does that add to the fire?
1: I think it adds quite a bit because if you look at it i think there's outside of evergrand i think there's also a whole set of investors not just in china but other places that were tied to that to a degree and while i don't see i think i think china will take care of the people that have bought real estate or have things that haven't closed through evergrand but i suspect that most of the bondholders and that sort of thing will go by the wayside and probably uh, you won't have the same Evergrande. they'll take all those ancillary companies they have and spin those off they'll do things i i don't know if you know if they just what was it two years ago they reached in and uh, harong was the was a company that did all the bond trading and you know went under um, that ended up being a problem because they had uh, obviously had some uh, fraud going on in fact they just executed the former ceo and they, they don't around with this stuff. And so I think they're aggressive, but I think they started trying to just cool down the real estate market. And in some ways, it probably backfired on them a little bit, and it was more than they expected. And now they're seeing growth, and we're seeing growth too slow there. And in and, and, and a country that's probably, you know, affects so many other countries, you can say, well, that's China, but China does, a, they do a lot of work uh, everywhere. And so I suspect it'll have an impact.
0: All right. Yeah, they used to say when uh, the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Uh, You know, I think when China sneezes, uh, you know, the U.S. is not immune by any stretch to that. Um, I'm going to torture that analogy even further and just ask you, how much of a wild card uh, do you regard COVID now in terms of the potential risk of new variants, et cetera, uh, to, to either you know, reemerge and, and force other parts of the world back into economic slowdown, maybe even the full lockdown. Um, uh, and tied to that, too, is, is, is we're seeing governments, you know, trying to affect their current public health strategies. But more and more uh, people in a, in a growing number of countries are basically kind of fed up uh, largely with being told what to do. And we're seeing a lot more sort of civil unrest uh, emerge as a result of that. So I guess my general question is just sort of, in in your you know planning for the future and your portfolio strategy whatnot, um, what kind of a wild card factor are you currently putting on COVID?
1: No, Adam, we're not putting a lot presently because we think that with this latest round, okay, that you're hitting a completely different age group, a lot of the different parts of the of the of the population. Uh, but it when you get past that, unless there's some other un, really unusual variants that show up. I suspect that we'll be in decent shape, I think, next year, or the next. That's just a, you know, no, none of us know. And so that's just a guess. But the point being about people is I think they're getting to the point of this, and that is, look, okay, I'm I'm vaccinated and that person's not. And but you know, we don't need to be telling everybody every move to make. I see I've gotten more comments back. In the last three or four weeks, from Australia, of, a, of of what they're doing, and people look at that and think this is really, really uh, breaking down their freedoms. Uh, while I don't agree, I, I may not agree with someone on what they how they want to approach it, but you know, uh, I have to tell you, um, I I also don't judge people that smoke, and I don't judge people that weigh four hundred pounds. I don't judge people that that eat lots of sugar, (laughs) everything I know that's bad for you. Okay. There's a lot of things bad for you. And uh, I think people are getting to the point where they're saying, you know, um, I've done what I can do. So I now I need you to leave me alone. I think that's where they're getting to. I may be misreading it, but I I feel like that's where people are getting to.
0: Yeah. And, 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 Forgive me. I'm not trying to pin you on on the more sensitive elements of COVID, and it is a hot button issue for a lot of different groups for very understandable reasons, and they can hold very, very different opinions and beliefs on this. Um, but it sounds like that as a, a steward of capital right now, um, you're not you're not uh, except you know you're, you're not dedicating an excessive amount of your time and attention to um, both the potential for COVID to become either a greater health crisis. Or a greater social crisis in 2022. It sounds like you're, don't let me put words in your mouth here, but it sounds like you're saying potential risk, but we're kind of expecting it to, to simmer down as time goes on, but we're vigilant so that if not, we can then react then. That's true. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, and and I, I don't know if I mentioned this at the introduction, but you know, your firm primarily, as I understand it, um, has a real focus on high net worth individuals. So you, know, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out, OK, how do we you know, preserve and be good stewards uh, of the wealth that, that these people have been fortunate enough to create in their lives? And so knowing kind of which pucks you're looking at um, and where you think those pucks are going, I think is helpful for anybody, no matter what their their own individual portfolio size is. So, all right, well, let's get uh, quickly to your market outlook. I think you've already sort of shared it at a high level, which is you've said, hey, look, um, we got all these factors that are showing that uh, growth is slowing that um, uh, next next year is going to be a harder year economically, and today's price-to-perfection stocks uh, are likely not going to be able to uh, continue that euphoric um, confidence uh, through what's coming. And you said that you'd sort of be surprised um, if we didn't see some sort of market reaction by at least the second quarter of of next year. Um, Please correct any of that if it's it's incorrect, but also if you could share with us what – what asset classes do you favor most right now given where you see things headed
1: well adam we're we're a very uh, simple uh, managers actually we have three strategies and so uh, we don't we don't have to break off into so many areas but just to give you an example on the growth strategy growth companies you know we look for the 15% growers and there's four or five categories that those go into if you look at digital advertising you look at the cloud, you look at uh, payments, for example, where we're going from cash to digital in many, many ways. Uh, and those are the thing, and you look at uh, advertising, but digital advertising, all of those fit, uh, the fit what we look for, which are the 15% growers that don't have a lot of debt. We think they can make it through a tough period, okay. It's not that the price wouldn't come down, maybe some, but but they're, they're in a position to do okay because they're leading the economy, uh, and then what we try to do in that stock area with that is we try to really fit in some ten to twelve percent growers, which include you know O'Reilly, automotive, charter communications. You'll see uh, United Health. You know we have a various group. That's just one area for growth. In the we have another area that's a, that's called conservative fixed income, and it's uh, very 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 conservative. And we use that. Uh, see, I, I think people don't realize they need they need to be able to live to play another day, survival. And what's what this last twelve years has created is a period where nothing bad has gone on for very long. I'm talking about maybe a month or a month and a half, and the feds come to the you know to, it came out and rescued everybody. So you have this whole group of people the last twelve years that. Think that, you know, that's business as usual, which is not actually. But, and then uh, the other thing is that you have a whole group of people that's never seen much in the way of change. I've been around the business a long time. There's been tremendous changes in asset classes and things that go on. So if you look at the last 12 years, it's a lot the same. They've all bought um, index funds and the exchange traded funds and, you know, plug and play. And, um, So I don't think they're ready for a change. And I think change is inevitable. It's coming. And so in that conservative fixed income account, we have that's the one that we have that says, hey, you need to have some money that can make sure you survive. And that one is the way that one's set up. And then the middle one we have that that is called an aggressive income strategy. And it's designed to beat the bond market which it has over time. Uh, And it has a lot of different assets in it, but not many bonds. (laughs) It's just designed to beat the bond market. A lot of high cash flows. Uh, And so when you mix those together, those three things, you end up with a really good balance. And I think people today, Adam, don't have much balance. I think they've gotten so addicted to the market uh, that they're all in and they just don't think about it. And, And it keeps on going until it's too late. And so, uh, we'll see if that works. But that's where we—that's kind of where we come down with everything.
0: All right. Uh, well, thank you. That's the whole reason why we do these videos is to give people um, insight into what smart advisors like you are doing uh, to give them, you know, fodder to consider what they might want to be able to do with their own their own investments. So, um, uh, I, I just want to put my finger on something that that I think you were really hammering home there, which is this, again, goes back to yet another unintended consequences, who knows, some might even say intended, I'll I'll say it's unintended, but unintended consequence of of government intervention is um, by ushering in this era of rock bottom, low interest rates, um, to your point there, Ted, uh, they've created this, you know, 12, 13 year period of false stability, um, and not even really stability, but just sort of false rising prosperity, where, you know, it's been easy, there hasn't been a lot of change. If you just invested passively into these indexes, uh, and you you, you you bought the dips, you know, you, you did very well. Um, and if you resisted that, uh, if God forbid, you know, you actually wanted to save your money, you know, in a bank account or whatnot, um, you were punished, you couldn't do it. Um, You know, those people who are depending upon fixed income to fund their retirement can't do it with interest rates this low. So everybody has been both um, kind of forced up the risk curve and then lulled into a a, a sense of complacency that their risk curve is actually an awful lot safer than it really is. Um, You know, what I've sort of said is you push people out on the thinner and thinner ice, but the ice hasn't cracked for so long that people are treating the thin ice with the confidence of concrete, Right but someday that, 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 that very well may not prove to be the case. I see you smiling here, but it's, it's, it sounds like uh, this is very much why you guys are, are investing the way you're investing.
1: Well, I, I think what people don't realize is that with this artificial market we've had from the Fed, they created so many things that are, are, are really abnormal and they don't really ever take into effect. They keep talking about inflation transitory. That The big, biggest inflation has been in uh, in financial assets and real estate. I mean, they've they've driven those things to sky high prices, where you know the average person coming in now is 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 not on a level playing field, and so that's just one of the things that's happened. And I think I really believe that investors are not ready for an extended period where they have poor performance because they're so used to this time when market falls off 20%, the Fed shows up and says, hey, we're going to take care of everything. That's actually not what they were created to do in the beginning. So this, this whole thing has been uh, really uh, uh, really unfortunate for investors because it set them up in a period where I don't think they're really considering their full risk. And uh, I see a lot of people are too old. You know, They've got too much in the market for their age. A lot, lot of things going on. And i, I while I believe I'm a big capitalist, I believe in the, in the American system, I believe in private and public companies, I think they've pushed this thing so far that there will come a point in time when people will look back and say, what was I thinking? <laughs> and we'll see if that happens, but I think it will.
0: Yeah, it, it, well, I agree a, a thousand percent that, that the general market is completely unprepared For you know what you just described might happen. So I did remember the question I wanted to circle back and close with here, which is, um, uh, you know, there are those that say, "Hey Ted, I hear you," but the Fed's been able to do this, you know, for the past thirteen. Why can't they just continue to do this forever? How is this going to get away from them? What's your answer to that?
1: Well, my answer is they can continue for a for a while. I mean, you. You can continue that to a certain point. But what happens is if you keep if you keep on doing, there's a point where you, you cross over and you can't come back. And by that I mean you get to a point to where all of a sudden they push so many dollars out there, Adam, that people look up and their, their dollars aren't worth anything. If you take uh, Reimer, Germany, for example, between say, uh, 1918 and 1924, uh, and we're similar where they just kept on printing, printing, printing. You, you know, you get to a point where you're like, "Well, it really doesn't make any difference because this is not worth anything. My dollar's not worth anything." You you will eventually get to that point. It might not be in the beginning. You could go another year or two, or something maybe longer. But there is a point to where all of a sudden the dollars that they're printing and pushing through, okay, are not worth anything. And when that happens. You lose confidence in the system and you turn to something else. And I, I, I think that's the risk they run by continuing to pile on like that. Eventually, it won't
0: work. All right, and for folks that are interested in a deep exploration of exactly what Ted just talked about, I just recorded an interview with Luke Roman that's going to be coming out in a few days. Make sure you check back uh, for that if you want to dive more deeply into that because we go really deep. Um, all right, Ted. Well, well, thank you. And it, it, you know, the the big question that people ask after hearing your answer there is, okay, well, then then when when is this going to happen? I, I I don't want to try to pin you on that because ultimately nobody really knows. But I do just want to give you a chance to underscore your Previously expressed belief that uh, uh, at least in the near term, uh, the, the bloom is going to come off uh, the markets or at least these all time market highs that we've been trading at as recently as earlier this month um, at some point, perhaps by you know beginning of next year, correct?
1: Well, I, I think that'll happen because we've done, if you look at how many days we've gone in them without, without as much as even, I know we had a 4% correction, but we always use this number of 5%. If you look at how many days we've gone without a 5% correction, it's a long time. Uh, and historically, uh, we never go this long. And this obviously has all been in put, put in place by the Fed. And there'll be some point in time to where all of a sudden people think, gosh, you know, we've gone down more than 5%. We've gone down 10 or 15 or 20. And they look up and uh, I think initially they'll think, hey, it's okay because, you know, they'll take care of it. They'll lower rates or something in fiscal policy, something, but it doesn't happen. And I think that is, that is the point right there that most investors should realize that, Hey, I need some capital that is safe. So two things, one, I can live, like I said, to play another day, but secondly, that I can take advantage if things get really, really cheap. I can take advantage, I can buy cheap real estate, cheap private businesses, cheap stocks. And so I, I think people need to keep that in mind so they've got a balance um, so they can, they, they can sleep at night.
0: All right, great, well, well really well said, Ted. Um, so in, in wrapping up here, um, very quickly, you're the author of several books. Um, a lot of them really focus on kind of the mentality of wealth building. Um, You know, humans at the end of the day, are animals, Um, our our evolutionary programming um, oftentimes can color our decision-making, especially when we become stressed. Um, And uh, so you've written some, I think, very important books on on basically how to prevent our more animalistic, uh, you know, ancestral wiring from getting in our way of making uh, level-headed decisions around our money. Do, do you have any parting advice for today's viewers about uh, you know, how to be able to remain calm-headed through what might be coming?
1: You know, Adam, the one piece of advice I always give people is if you're going to remain emotionally stable during really, really volatile times, and I'm talking about when the market's down 40% or 50% or something, some number, Okay you have to have your assets structured so that there is a piece of those assets that allows you to be able to know you're okay. In one of my books, I call it your choking point. But what I see with a lot of people is they don't have that set aside in the beginning. So as you ratchet down and market prices with things, they, can't, they get to that point and they, unfortunately, they get to that choking point and they don't have any other liquidity, so they have to pull the cord right at the low of the market, which is an emotional move. And so you have to, as an investor, say, OK, what do I need to do to become a non-emotional investor? Because I've always said the price you pay to be in the stock market is a 25 to 40% decline. That's your ticket. And so you have to realize that's that ticket, but you have to have another ticket it is a safety valve, and that is the one that keeps you in the game, and you don't have to do something
0: ridiculous at the worst time.
1: So that would be that'd be my advice to you.
0: All right. Well, very wise words from a wise and very seasoned investor. Um, you know, I'll sort of add to what you're saying there, which is um, a really good way to help also take the emotion out is to work under the guidance of a professional experienced, seasoned financial investor um, who can, you know, build a plan based on logic rather than emotion. Uh, And sort of what you were saying, too, is to to really put your plan in place beforehand so that, um, you know, if certain things happen, if you're getting down to your choke point and whatnot, you've already put that progression in place beforehand. and You're not having to, you know, scramble around to try to figure out what to do in a panic. All right, Ted. So with that, for folks that have enjoyed this conversation, would like to learn more about you and your work, where can they go?
1: You know, the best place, Adam, is just go to oxbowadvisors.com and you can see everything. We have uh, Oh, a number of books we've written uh, about various subjects and we have a lot of interviews about uh, what we, you know, where we see things. But uh, well, I, they go to oxbowadvisors.com and they'll, they'll get everything they need there, I think.
0: Excellent. Fantastic. And, and, you know, during the editing process, we'll put the URL up there on the screen just so it's crystal clear where folks should go. Well, again, Ted, thank you so much. Wonderful discussion. Really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insights with us and hope to have you on the program again in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, be, be, be happy to look forward to it again. Thank
0: you. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion with investment advisor Ted Oakley. If his warning of an approaching market correction by or before early 2022 caught your attention, then read the brand new report, How to Hedge Against a Market Correction we just released here at Wealthion. It walks you through the most commonly used hedging techniques you can use to protect your portfolio from downside risk. It's completely free and you can access it by going now to Wealthion.com hedge. And if you haven't already, Don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. If everyone watching now does this, these two steps really do help this channel reach a lot more people. Thanks for watching.